Today's reading is 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. It can be found on page 1061 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Will you, oh, will you join me in prayer for a moment? Lord, uh, we come from so many different places, so many different points in life right now, so many different things have happened in the week leading up to now. Uh, we, we face such different situations tomorrow. But the thing we have in common is a desperate need for love. And we ask that you'd be with us here now, you, your love would, would show up in our midst, that um, it'd show up in my words, it would show up in all of our ears as we, we listen for what you might have to say to us, that would show up as we, we greet one another, catch up with one another, meet new people, uh, invite one another into our lives, that you would knit us together in love, that you would transform us by your love, you would help us to be won over by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, Donald Trump is running for president. I know. I think the media saturation level is at a point that this is not a good hook for starting a sermon. <laughs> We're done. Tomorrow's the Iowa caucus. Let's just let it be. Um, but the media can't get enough of this. To the point that the big story a week ago, today, was that Donald Trump went to church. 
And not just that, but Donald Trump went to church, and the sermon was on 1 Corinthians 12, and it was about humility. And everyone loved this. This was, I saw this from every media source on my, on my feed. You know, this was coming from Fox News, this was coming from NPR, this was coming from MSNBC. He heard a sermon on humility. And after the service, uh, he was speaking with reporters. They asked him about it. And he said, I quote, I have more humility than people think. <laughs> Which, however you feel about him, that is a great quote. Uh, that is, <laughs> that's really something. Uh, and he, w- he went on to say, half jokingly but half seriously, we talked about humility in church today. I don't know if that was aimed at me, perhaps. And my first impulse when I heard this, I have to admit, is to think this, this is a Presbyterian church. They're preaching from the lectionary, which is a, a book that lays out what scripture passages are going to be preached on for chur- thousands of churches who are all working from the same book. And this lectionary is compiled decades ago. Um, the, the passage, 1 Corinthians 12, was chosen a long time ago. And my first thought was the hubris of thinking that this was picked to be about you. And then, the more I thought about this, it dawned on me that Donald Trump was being a much better student of the word that was read in church than I almost ever am. That when he heard this passage, he felt that it was saying something about him. He heard it indicting pride and arrogance and vanity, and he thought to himself, is this directed at me? He, you know, it, it landed for him. I, I don't know what is working um, in his life, and that's not really my business to know. But I think when I hear 1 Corinthians 12 read out, especially in a church service, my impulse is much more along the line of thinking, this is a familiar passage, it says some nice things about how we need each other, and then I kind of tune out. But... For Trump, this, this, he heard this like a personal attack. And in a way, it is. It's a personal attack on each of us. It indicts every one of our selfish habits and our vanities and our, our prideful ambitions. <laughs> Man, he, he was a better student that week than I was. And I bring this up because this is a real threat with the passage today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 the famous chapter on love. Uh, if you have been a regular church attender throughout your life, you've undoubtedly encountered this many times. If this is your first Sunday ever visiting a church gathering, you've probably encountered this too at a wedding or at a wedding in a movie. Um, Dan pointed out the other day that there's uh, quite a bit of talk about this in uh, Wedding Crashers. Um, <laughs> that this passage just shows up. And... Um, and it suffers from familiarity and also from, from beauty. Uh, on that familiar side, like I said, we've heard it in so many situations that you hear 1 Corinthians 13 and you say, if, you know, love is patient, and then we tune out. Because we know what this is about. Um, it's, it's a nice passage. Uh, and it's, it's pretty, too. You know, it has the threat of being pretty. It, it keeps saying the word love in a nice way. Love is patient, love is kind, and, you know, it's, is this um, a sonnet of some sort? Um, 
I don't know, it's just nice to listen to, and it's easy to tune out and let that happen. It, it sounds like it belongs on a throw pillow, you know, cross-stitch on a little throw pillow. Um, but the truth is, this passage should make us uncomfortable, which is something it has in common with a cross-stitch throw pillow, because embroidery fabric's not soft. Um, but... It calls into question a lot of the, the, the baggage we bring to the word love. Um, it's no secret, and, and here you can tune out too because this is so trite, but we know from Facebook memes and from romantic comedies and little tchotchkes that you know, we are given throughout life that, that love is this nice, warm feeling that you get around people you care about. Uh, love is a strong emotional reaction uh, that just makes you feel warm and fuzzy. And, and this passage is dealing with love very differently. Um, and that's not to say that the easy thing to say here is that, that emotions are, are stupid or wrong or weak, and that's not the case. Emotion, the emotional love, that warmth, that affection, is not a bad thing. It's not an inherently bad thing. Uh, you know, emotion is not something that we need to get beyond either. Uh, Christianity sometimes gets the reputation for being for, for promoting stoicism, um, that we need to you know just put on a, a solid face and, and move forward of our emotions because emotions are sinful. That's not the case. Uh, the Gospels are full of stories where Jesus feels emotion immensely, where he exhibits immense emotion. Um, so there's nothing inherently wrong with the emotion. But the emotional side of love, that affection, that, that desire, that warmth, just isn't enough. Um, in the passage today, which, which is, it should be noted, isn't just a little poem pulled out of nowhere. It's the 13th chapter of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth, um, a, a church that had, was, had all sorts of problems. Um, it was really tearing itself apart in a lot of ways. So this is written to specific context. It's not just a poem. Um, and, and what he says is, love is not defined by emotion. Love is defined by action. He says, love is defined by what it does and what it refuses to do. Uh, and this gets at the idea that, that the emotional love isn't enough. Um, there are two sides that, that really obviously come out of this idea that love is an action, not an emotion. Um, one is, when we think of love primarily as an emotion, it has the effect that we love people that we prefer. We love the people who are like us, who are easy to like, who are enjoyable, who have a, a sense of humor that clicks with ours, who um, are kind to us. And honestly, that group of people is pretty small. You know, if in the grand scheme of things, think about how many friends you have and how many close friends you have and how many people you even kind of feel affection for, and that's not a huge slice of the number of people that you know, most likely. Um, there are plenty of people who frustrate you, who treat you badly, um, who hold beliefs that are just, you just feel like they're insane. Um, and, you know, the, the affection of love, the feeling, emotion of love, is not enough for those people. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't compel us to do anything for them. It doesn't compel us to see that these people are our neighbors, that these people 
are people that we owe something to, that we have a responsibility to do what is right for them. Um, it, it just draws too tight of a boundary, and, and it ends up excluding most people from the command to love others. Uh, the other side of this, of course, is that the, uh, the affection, the emotion of love, that can go away. And so this is, you know, the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians 13, uh, being read at weddings, is that in some situations it's being read as a poem that is about that nice, warm feeling. Um, it says, you know, right now I feel so warmly about you that I'm willing to make all sorts of promises. Hopefully we keep feeling this way about one another. Um, and what Paul is saying instead is, you know, love is this commitment. Love is the, the commitment to see things through, uh, that recognizes that the, the affections and the emotions will come and go, they'll ebb, they'll, they'll uh, flow. Thank you, yeah. What is the other thing for ebb? Uh, you know, sometimes people will forget words, and you <laughs> may think, no. Uh, anyway, so, so he says, no, this is, you know, something more profound, um, a commitment that goes beyond that. It's, it's one that it has to be more inclusive of more people and it can't just drop away when somebody stops being likable, when someone stops being lovable. Paul defines emotion as this action, and he, he, he sets it up so it is clearly the opposite of selfish pride. Uh, which, <laughs> to some extent, it's like, okay, we can stop the sermon here, because we look inside ourselves, yeah, we all know we're not that selfish or that prideful. Uh, we do plenty of nice things for people. Um, you know, we, we're good to people and a lot of the time. Uh, we kind of have a sense that, you know, we know we should admit that we're generically imperfect. Imperfect, imperfect. See, there you go. Uh, we have some abstract flaws. Um, we could doubtless use some work of some kind, but in general, we're pretty decent people. Uh, the way that Paul frames love in 1 Corinthians 13 if we're coming at it from that point of view of thinking that we're basically there, this passage is actually kind of a jerk. Uh, <laughs> it won't let us off that easily. So think about the, the opening stanza. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. The things that Paul lists here are not bad things. They're actually very good things, and most of them are good things that I can't hope to ever attain. If I can fathom all knowledge, if I can fathom all mysteries, if I give everything I have to the poor, if I sacrifice my body to the flames for a good cause, you know, these, are, these are huge things. And he's, he's not denying that they're good. He says, if you do these without love, you gain nothing. Because there's something missing when these are done without love. And uh, the question is, I think the, the very natural question here is, how do you do something like give away everything you have to the poor without doing it with love? Like, how is that possible? Uh, what else can motivate you that way? And here he's diving deep into some psychology. Um, this is something that the, the Desert Fathers, um, these, there were these early Christians, it's actually the Desert Fathers and Mothers, the Mothers 
writings haven't been as well preserved, but they, uh, these were monks in the fourth century who were living in the desert by choice, and they don't seem like people that would have necessarily a lot to say to our context, but they spent so much time in reflection that they actually honed in on some things. And uh, if you've heard of the seven deadly sins, um, this is an idea that they kind of worked out as they reflected on their own baggage. Um, you know, so it's sloth, which is laziness, and wrath, and lust, and gluttony, and vainglory, and uh, I'm missing one, and pride. Uh, but they reflected on these, and they, they recognized in, in Gregory the Great, one of these guys, he looked at all these, and he realized that you could actually get rid of the bottom six, the, the lust, and the gluttony, and the wrath, uh, you could get these out of your life by relying on pride. He said, you know, in the same way that you can use one nail to drive out another nail, you can drive these out with this, this more profound um, and deeper level of selfishness. Um, he says, you know, pride can motivate us to say that, you know, I am too good to be beholden to, to bodily appetites. You know, I'm not going to be ruled by food. I'm not going to be ruled by sex. I'm going to be stoic and uh, preserve myself from this embarrassing anger. You know, I'm going to work hard um, to prove myself. He says pride can be the motivation for all of these things. But he also recognized that when that happens, it doesn't necessarily leave a person in a better place. Um, that attaining this sort of outward perfection by destroying your inside uh, is not good for you. Uh, in fact, it might primarily be bad for you. It might actually be somewhat good for the people around you who you're not mistreating because you're too prideful to mistreat them. You don't want to think of yourself as a person who mistreats, but you leave yourself destroyed. And this is the sort of thing that Paul's getting at here, is that we can have all sorts of motivations for doing even very good things. Um, you know, because it's easy to think, like, how is it, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm loving because I have a coworker who is such a jerk uh, and I smile when they talk to me. You know, I, I don't pay it back like that. Obviously, I'm loving. Or if you, if you want to know if I'm loving, look at how much I sacrifice for my kids. You know, look what I'm doing here. Like, obviously, I'm a loving person. Um, you know, I'm always there for my friends. Whenever they need me, no matter what it is, middle of the night, I'm there for them. How could that be done from anything other than love? And with what Paul is encouraging us to do, we can look in and see it's possible that we are doing that from love. It's not saying that those things are always done from the wrong place. But, you know, there's a chance that when we smile at our jerk coworker, that we are protecting our job, that we're maintaining a reputation of professionalism, that, uh, you know, we just want our coworkers to think of us in contrast to that person. Like, oh, he's the nice guy, she's the nice guy. That one's not. Um, you know, when we sacrifice for our kids, it's possible that... <laughs> that was a fun little voice crack. Uh, it's, you know, it's possible that we're doing this because we kind of enjoy the warm glow of martyrdom. You know, like, like <laughs> I am a really great person because look what I did. And someday when my kid's a teenager, I can hold this against them. I can say, do you have any idea how late I was up with you? You know, um, when, we're, when we're always there for our friends, sometimes that's because... We can't stand the thought of our friends not depending on us. We need them uh, to want us. Uh, in the words of Carly Simon, 
I love you to love me. I want you to want me. I need you to need me. I'm begging you to beg me. Um, we, we have this selfish motivation. You know, we're doing nice things for people. We're doing good things for people. And that has a good result in a lot of ways. But we're doing it bent toward ourselves, not primarily because we're working for their benefit, but we want them to be benefited in order to, for the benefit to flow back to us. Um, we want other people's lives to depend on us. Uh, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is maybe a familiar name, um, he was a pastor under the Nazi Reich. Um, he pastored a, a protesting church against that. And all around him he saw um, fellow citizens who were doing horrendous things and finding ways to talk about it as if they had really good motivations for these things. You know, that there was this, this patriotism and this loyalty and this passion that, you know, they used these good terms to justify doing terrible things. And he didn't leave it on this very easy level of, yes, the, my Nazi neighbors are doing bad things. He, he looked at it internally at what his church life was doing, at the people within his church who were specifically protesting against the Nazis, and he saw that in a, on a different scale, these exact same things were playing out within his church, that people were, were using one another, people were using the idea of love and principles to take advantage of one another. Um, he, he talks about two types of love. He talks about human love. Uh, that's his term for um, this kind of selfish, self-absorbed, um, self-seeking love. And he talked about spiritual love, which was a love primarily concerned for others, um, especially concerned for them because of a, of a recognition that God loves that person. Uh, and so a quote from his book, Life Together. He says, Human love... This is the bad love, remember. Human love lives by uncontrolled and uncontrollable dark desires. Spiritual love lives in the clear light of service ordered by truth. Human love produces human subjection, dependence, constraint. Spiritual love creates freedom of the brethren under the word. Human love breeds hothouse flowers. Spiritual love creates the fruits that grow healthily in accord with God's goodwill in the rain and the storm and the sunshine of God's outdoors. He has this idea that the, this human love, this, this false love, it, it benefits other people in the same way that a hothouse benefits a flower. You know, if you, you build a greenhouse, you can grow orchids in there, even in the middle of winter. Um, you know, you, you're doing good things for them. But if that orchid was removed from your particular care, it'll die. If it's taken outside into the actual world, away from, from this little controlled environment you have, it's going to suffer. It's not going to make it. And he says, this is what human love does. It, it builds other people up as long as they're attached to you. It prepares them to do okay as long as they stay in your good graces. But it doesn't prepare them to, to flourish in a world apart from you. It, it wants to make their world about you. It wants to make everybody's world about you. Um, and it can do many good things for others. That orchid in there, it's getting its nutrients, it's getting its warmth, it's getting its sun, it's getting its water, but it's not good for its flourishing in general. If something were to happen to you, it would go. And so we act in false love as well when 
when we want to do, we want other people to, to flourish. You know, we want the people around us to, um, to get promotions at work, to have higher and higher titles. We're excited for them. Um, you know, if they, they get recognition in that way. And we're excited about it because we're attached to them somehow, because we can kind of share in that glory. That's, that's a false love. Um, when we want to be able to take credit for something, you know, say, this person did something great, and, you know, actually, I, I mentioned some of those things to them that they, uh, they ended up, you know, using in their life to succeed. So, yeah, I'm partly responsible for that. Um, we want good for other people insofar as we can get something good out of it. Uh, one of the issues with selfish love is that it's not willing to do what is necessary for the good of others. Um, it's not, it, it's the sort of thing where, you know, a friend of yours is doing something wrong and you don't call them on it. You don't, you know, this, so this is bad for them because they're doing something wrong that's going to lead in the end to more damage. It might be damaging the lives of people around them, but you're not going to call them on it because you don't want to risk the nice th- benefit that you get back from them of being somebody who's always supportive. Um, you know, the selfish love can be consistently supportive, but it has a hard time uh, pulling back that support when it should be pulled back. It has a hard time having hard conversations with people. It can gloss over all sorts of uh, problems and, and allow this, you know, bitterness and damage to go on under the surface. And, and it prevents the deepening of relationships. You know, we could be working together, one another, expressing... When you did this, that was really harmful. That, that was the wrong thing. It did this damage. Um, in response, we can forgive one another and we can work forward. But this false love doesn't want to go down to those levels. It wants to maintain whatever level of benefit we're getting. It doesn't want to risk it. And so it leaves things at a very surface, shallow level. Um, and this gets at, I think, a strong tendency with with 1 Corinthians 13, with its list of characteristics of love, it's patient, it's kind, it rejoices with the truth. Um, it's always tempting to simplify that list and to identify love by one or two of those traits and to leave out the rest. Uh, in fact, the way that's written, these traits, you have to hold them all together. They keep one another in tension. Um, if they don't keep one another in tension, you go, end up going off in extremes that fall away from, from love as what it's meant to be. So, for example, when you remember that love always protects and it always trusts and it always hopes, but you don't remember that love rejoices with the truth and abhors evil, you end up with a misguided loyalty. And that can end up being a sort of um, developing a tribal identity that these are my people and I'll protect them and everybody else is outside of that, regardless of who's right or wrong. You know, I'm here for these people. Or it can be... You know, I, like I mentioned, um, I will always stand by this friend, even when they're doing the wrong thing, even if that harms other people. Um, when we emphasize that it always hopes and always trusts and that it keeps no record of wrongs, but again, we, we forget that it you know, always protects, it rejoices with the truth, we can end up advising people in a way that keeps victims of abuse in abusive situations. Because we can end up telling them that love means that you just have to keep hoping that things are going to change and you can't take any sort of measures to break free from that. Uh, we, uh, when we remember 
that love rejoices with the truth, that it hates evil, but we forget that love is kind, we end up you know, being someone who tells it like it is and crushes people with criticism. Um, you know, we, can, we can develop a, kind of a, a way that we just always have harsh words to say, and they may be, they may be right, and they may destroy people instead of helping them to be set on the right path. So true love is not motivated by a desire to manipulate others um, or to extract benefits from ourselves. It's not a feel-good term that we can just redefine whenever we want to justify what we're doing. Um, but there's an opposite error we can make when we're trying to correct for this. And that is uh, to see love as a way to prove our superiority, to prove our morality and our acceptability, to prove that we are good people. Um, for maybe some of the more neurotic of us, and you know me, uh, this can become a thing to like, think about. I need to somehow earn God's approval, and I have to, you know, make sure I'm ticking all the boxes on on loving people perfectly uh, in order to do that. It can become a new set of rules. It can become a new law that's just a burden on us. Because if you read through this, there's no way, you know, we're going to keep this perfectly. And this can, this can just become a crushing thing. I'm never going to live up to this love. Um, or it can become a thing of, I think I'm doing a pretty good job on it. You know, I'm actually, uh, it, it can contribute to pride again that way. Um, and so the answer is, is not to go that way either. Um, so then we're kind of left with a question of, if the motivation for loving others isn't because we get to manipulate them and get some reward back for ourselves, um, if the motivation isn't that we have these rules that we need to live by to, to win God's acceptance, um, then what is the motivation? Uh, and this comes in, in late in the chapter. Uh, Paul says that even as I am fully known, he talks about the fact that we are fully known by God. Uh, that's this idea God... You know, it, we don't put on a performance for God. We don't have to try to trick God into thinking, you know, I, I, I'm, I really am a pretty good person. Um, we don't have to trick other people into thinking that we're of value. Because you are ultimately already fully known. You're not fooling. You might be fooling some people. Um, you're probably not fooling all people. You're definitely not fooling God with this. But beyond that, God doesn't just fully know you, including the flaws and the errors, but God loves you. Nonetheless, um, the theologian Miroslav Volf wrote, um, because God's love isn't caused by its object, it can love those who are not lovable, sinners, evil persons, fools, and weaklings, in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. So he says, the love of God is not, it's not something that's triggered by the lovableness of the beloved. Um, it's not that you prove yourself to be a good enough person that now God's like, oh, I love you, actually. It turns out that I do enjoy you. Uh, it turns out that God is aware of, of all your flaws, of all the ways that we manipulate one another and all that, and still God chooses to love us with a love that, that can change us, that can make us lovable. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing with the, the descriptions of love here. You can, every one of these instances, you can replace the word love with God, 
And it's just as accurate. God is patient. God is kind. Um, God does not rejoice with the evil, but rejoices with the truth. God, is per- God perseveres. God hopes. God trusts. Um, God never fails. And in 1 John, the letter of 1 John, it says that God is love. That this is a defining characteristic of God, is this sort of self-giving love for the benefit of other people. That's not motivated because they deserve it. Uh, it's not motivated as a response to something they've done, but that it is itself, um, it, it's just there for them. It is a love that gives for their benefit. And so back to the question of what's our motivation here? If it's not that we get some benefit, if it's not that we um, are living by a new set of rules. And the only answer I can think of is that when you have tasted and experienced the love of God, is that it's a paradigm shift. It, it's transformative. Uh, once you, when you experience that, the questions of why should I share this tend to fall away. Um, when you realize that the, the love of God is so abundant that it's enough for everyone, it, it motivates you to, to tear down the walls that we build to, to protect our little hoard of, of goodness in life and to realize there's more than enough goodness um, to build tables instead and invite our neighbors over to enjoy the feast. Um, when you don't have to worry about scarcity of love, you know, we don't have to do good deeds for others in the hope that they'll repay it with interest. We can just give it to them. We can give it away, free of charge, without any repayment. And so we're invited to abandon calculating ways, our self-centered ways, and to join in this just economy of grace, this constant giving, this uh, abundant outpouring of love. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help each of us to, uh, to experience your love. For those of us who, who don't know that experience, uh, or those of us who might have known it at some point and we forget about it, uh, those of us who have seen it and, and been lured away from it, I pray that you would help each of us to know what it is to be loved even as we're fully known. Help each of us to be able to recognize the surplus of your love. Help us, wherever we're at right now, to recognize that we have been given an abundance, that we are more than free to give away, that we, we aren't marked by competition and scarcity, but just by overflow. We ask these things in your name. Amen.